I'm quite dedicated to working with trying to imagine different futures for not just human, but all kinds of non-human life, organic or otherwise, that we share the planet with. And the way stories are told, the ways, the way language works, so many things come together. The fact we're vision-led, perspectival, I'm the center of my vision. And, and the way AI is trained, that means that a lot of context and background, for want of a better word, is removed. And you don't see the intricate web of context and implication and consequence that happens and communication that happens between all kinds of matter and um, being in the world. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Maggie Roberts. Maggie, also known as Mer, is a visual artist who works across a variety of mediums. She's the co-founder of Orphan Drift, a collective, and teaches at multiple institutions across the UK. Maggie joined me to discuss one of her most recent projects, which explores how AI can be integrated and learn from nature, most particularly through the experience of an octopus. Maggie imagined how an AI model could be trained through watching an octopus experience the world and chose an octopus because it is a creature of nine brains. Neurologically, it has eight different perspectives on the world in each of its eight legs and a central brain in its main body. This question of multi-perspectival understanding, awareness, embodiment even, experience, is something that Maggie is trying to insert into the world of technology in a bid to ameliorate a tool that we know right now is coded for bias. This is a wide-ranging conversation on vision, on perspective, on the role of art in crisis, on art as resistance, imagination as an act of bravery, the importance of experience, the deathly mechanics of our global economy, and the amazing capacity of grassroots to blossom new possibilities for a world in crisis. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Maggie, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. And to be here. Thank you for asking. Maggie, why is the world in crisis? Um, well, I, I think um, as an artist and a kind of researcher into AI and ecological issues and human centrism in the sort of Western enlightenment um, version of the real, I feel like we are 
I've noticed it in some of your other podcasts, the issue of a crisis of imagination, um, like people on the left being unable to actually articulate different possible worlds coming out of this one we're in at the moment, this like 21st century extractivist um, market capitalism fed by social media and all of the things we know, all of the parts of the mesh of how we experience the world come together to make for a very homogenized, flattened, uh, distracted, sort of post-truth and uncertain environment. And I think in the the global north, we have had a really easy time of it. Or partic- I mean, Britain has had a very easy time of it in terms of um, climate crisis. And so I think for me, that's the sort of uh, place where so many of the effects of the way we've lived for the capitalism have come together in this. Yeah, I'm quite dedicated to working with trying to imagine different futures and for not just human, but all kinds of non-human life or organic or otherwise. Um, that we share the planet with, and the way stories are told, the ways the way language works, so many things come together. The fact we're vision led, perspectival, um, you know, like I'm the center of my vision, and there's a and the way AI is trained, that means that a lot of context and background, for want of a better word, is removed and. You don't see the intricate web of context and implication and consequence that happens and communication that happens between all kinds of matter and um, being in the world. So, yeah, I feel like I'd like to talk, I think, a bit from point of view of the importance of art today for, for trying to think about ways of investigating this state of crisis we're in and from multiple perspectives, multiple viewpoints and working with multidisciplinary teams because I also think part of like a radically broken system is that um, kinds of knowledge gathering don't speak to each other and so there's an impunity in science for what has been being developed and the way uh, things are treated for like centuries. Uh, look, we've learned loads. I'm not being. I'm not being. Um, I'm always full of grey areas. I'm not. I'm not being judgmental. I just think, uh, like, so we've been work. I'm part of a collective artist avatar called Orphan Drift, which has been going since the '90s. We have always been thinking about other kinds of perception and proprioception and the relationships between human and machine worlds. And I suppose starting off in Web 1, there was a lot of hope for decentralized um, community-based individual and collective world building, um, both in actual and virtual sense. And then none of my wildest nightmares prepared me for Web 2. And we have some hope that Web3 with 
being based on blockchain technology might provide a decentralized space for all of the younger people who are way more uh, have affinity with coding on all sorts of ways of building platforms that might serve them and their communities. And I've been, we've been working, we've been partnered by the Serpentine Gallery's Creative AI Lab and Arts Technologies for the last few years. And um, they're an example of an institution who's making forums possible for, they're really questioning the role of art institutions in community, in making change and facilitating voices which have been uh, ignored or silenced or not had access to a public platform to be uh, forefronted and, and supported in developing new kinds of, for example, gaming, like a multi-billion dollar industry, which is a right place for inserting new kinds of thinking and experiencing mm. and non-human agency into. So yeah, I think I feel like uh, art as activism is becoming quite a voice. It's so rich, um, everything that you said. And I suppose if we start up and work our way down in the way that you did, this crisis of imagination is a term that's been used a lot on the show. Um, and there's a really famous quote that, and I can't remember to whom I should attribute it, but it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the end of capitalism. Yeah, I know that also yeah. can't attribute it. Absolutely. But why? I mean, what is it this particular moment that our imaginations are, that our brains are oversaturated by the amount of information that we have? Like, is this crisis of imagination worse, do we think? Or does this often happen to people? Why, why is this happening? And also, you said people on the left are unable to articulate different possible worlds. I have to say, I've never thought about this before, but when you said that, something about it rang so true in the fact that the right, the right seem fairly imaginative at the moment. I mean, what the new right have been doing in the United States, the way that they are weaponizing different forms of, you know, information and disinformation, all this kind of stuff, it's quite incredible. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, I think I just feel like a lot of the left, which I have, you know, a long history in, is reactive. Like everyone's so horrified all the time. One's in a state of kind of damage limitation or mm -hmm. crisis management in response to one unthinkable event after another, whether it's um, nation state behaviors or climate crises that are ongoing, encroaching slowly on the north, even. And I mean, yeah, I think the sense of instability, we don't know in our, in my world, what to do with instability in a way, like as an artist, we all, we, I always feel making space for the unknown and the uncertain is a kind of part of one's process, uh, let alone conceptual or ethical belief systems, um, what you want to bring into the world creatively. But I also think we don't know what to do is, um, if you're in the experience of 
sort of extreme events. And I, I taste a little of it because I have part lived in on the coast near Cape Town in South Africa for the last 20 years. And watching what's happening to a pristine, biodiverse, incredible, I mean, I'm just avoiding the human politics for a moment, but it's huge. Like I went there for a few weeks during this summer and there was a sort of tsunami that was brought together by different sorts of temporality coming together at a point, like a sort of moment that wasn't predictable, but it was like something had fallen off the Atlantic ice shelf. There was a spring tide, which means huge body of water, full moon zone um, pushing at the coast. There was an earthquake in the uh, waters. There was a huge storm, low pressure system. All these things coming together produced this unfeasible body of water at high speed coming onto the land. And it's took cars away, Navy divers were killed, were trying to rescue people. They'll be spending months fixing coastal roads. None of this is in our news. And this is one small event in a relatively stable, I mean, no, not stable, but relatively okay life experience for most. I mean, it's not like in crisis, that country yet in terms of climate. So anyway, so I think there's a huge discrepancy between what we know here, or as you were saying, the information one gets given is highly uh, selected. And um, yeah, though we've also been through drought there, like queuing for water and being like, having to wash with a yogurt pot full of water every day because you're, you're allowed to use, consume is a matter of a few litres. It didn't go on for that long, but that was a really mad experience compared with what I have here. And also there's like nine hours of power cuts on mm. many days and businesses still manage to operate. So I think I think I'm informed by two worlds which has actually been amazing. Mm. She says, sounding like a disaster tourist, but um, <laughs> it's very sobering, the uh, different kinds of experience people are having. And I, I have been thinking a lot about how these moments in time that many different sorts of deep time and yeah, geological time and lived mortal time and sort of different systems in the world, sorts of temporality can coincide and build these things that feel fictional to anyone not experiencing it in a way. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, so just one thing I have been thinking about a lot in the last few years is experience is like embedding or practice in in experience so that your message out to the world or the questions you're asking are nuanced and multi-perspectival and acknowledging really interested in this idea of a pluriverse or a, like multiple 
it's quite a indigenous community across the world concept of reality where you've got like really different kinds of dimension, time, life world experiences all coinciding in their differences without conflict. Like their differences are, they're all part of a plural view. And I think working uh, with the octopus stuff I've been into for the past years is because um, they've got nine brains. So they're fairly unique alien to us to try and stretch our imaginations into. They've got a sort of semi-independent brain in each of the eight arms and a ninth central brain that comes into play uh, to coordinate stuff. So they're literally uh, mapping the world through eight different viewpoints on their environment. And a lot of the stuff we've been doing, trying to make fictions about octopuses being recognized by an AI as um, a very useful form of embodiment for the evolution of AI away from Western human-centric agendas is a. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun with that for the past four years or so. Let's excellent. I'm let's let's get into it for sure. I think some important context for for listeners that might not that know that much about AI. AI we call it intelligent, but it's not actually intelligent. From what I understand of it, uh, normally it creates sentences by saying the next most likely word. So its way of thinking, quote unquote, is very, very fragmented. It's trained on a whole bunch of information. As we know, information is produced in a biased way. And there have already been flags around the bias that is in ChatGPT um, and other big AI bots. That's what we call AI bots <laughs> that are currently sort of available to people. So it's quite a misnomer, I think, and quite misleading right now to call it intelligent. But to keep developing something of intelligence with that bias already in its foundations is something that sort of AI experts are, and artists are screaming about and saying this is very, very dangerous. That's the AI context. Now, please, could you give some more background to this, the project with the octopus and um, this idea of the, the the eight experiences plus the ninth central vein, as you were, but I just thought I'd jump in and give some context. No, no, you're, that was perfect. Although, to be said, there's a lot of uh, cutting-edge AI exploration by visionary machine learning experts around trying to make multinodal or a shifting reward system or um, as in the bias can be dismantled mm. would be the great point of that like all sorts of new ways of trying to I don't understand loads of it but like evolutionary algorithms um, generative or genetic algorithms like the words that the terms suggest to me that there is um, awareness in some fields to of trying to uh, yeah dismantle this this state of bias that is socio politically ethically increasingly dangerous but onto octopuses <laughs> so 
Yeah, we've had several projects in the last few years. One was called, which is toured internationally, it was a big sort of multi-screen thing with sound called and text called If AI Were Cephalopod. And that was um, asking questions about embodiment and um, based on the octopuses. Um, like the AIs miss out on an awful lot of actual what reality is about by having no sense yet of the physical in a way like they're not experienced that mess that's the world the body in the world the octopus is um sensorium is they mostly sense chemotactile so they're aware of chemical information coming from so many sources that are not you know bounded by distance because water's a fluid medium currents carry information all over the world so we were very interested in how they were dealing with the increasing toxicity acidification all this kind of thing because their skins are so porous they uh, they they cite their siphon which they is this sort of muscle propulsion muscle that well they also breathe through it it takes water in and expels it out takes oxygen in and they move jet propel with it so their siphon literally makes the inside their insides the outside or their outsides the insides a bit like we breathe but it's so much more viscerally present mm. the liquidity of the ocean anyway so they yeah we were thinking that they have no boundaries they have no way of sealing against toxicity but and they're warming Weirdly, as a general species, they seem to be doing incredibly well. And one part of this could be this a sort of reproduction frenzy in response to panic, or it could be because they only live two years, they also have um, evolutionary speed of adaptation, unlike um, life forms that live for a lot longer. So there's a lot going for them in terms of... Um, a model or a kind of cipher as a, or a symbol as artist to to through which to explore really radically different kinds of perception and knowledge gathering from what I do in this human body. Uh, so yeah, they see polarized light. They um, see ultraviolet light. They, I mean, loads of creatures have insanely brilliant, amazing different from us kinds of intelligence and embodied intelligence. I think that's something we're really, really interested in that we've sort of forgotten how to do somewhat in the West. Like to I'm I think being aware is teaching me to be more aware of the environment that I move through and inhabit this whole deep dive into octopus consciousness and intelligence. And then just quickly the other thing I did was during COVID, we had a um, Arts Council commission through IMT Gallery in London to do something online that was responding to the locked COVID lockdown. And I had been watching some meditations like Chopra, Deepak Chopra, that kind of thing, like just dealing with the panic of what the hell is happening. What is this thing called a pandemic and what's happened to our worlds? And... Uh, so I did these octopus meditations, which are 
series of eight, as in eight arms, that go through octopuses' ways of experiencing their world. And I worked with a renowned interspecies communicator in South Africa who's, that was life-changing for me because she sort of holds this space that's absolutely not negotiated in the West by science. Uh, and it sounds really new age, but it's very old shamanic kind of technology where you just drop a question into the some just internal space and don't judge the answer logically and and kind of talk to animals as if they were humans but a different kind of human or just we're all different consciousness somehow but i learned loads of stuff about how they respond to pressure and uh, there's no horizon and they've got this 360 degree awareness and they sense a lot of stuff that is all moving in waves but then if it's a direct movement that's usually a predator there was so much stuff that got downloaded but I also think because I spent loads of time learning to free dive because I was stuck in South Africa for two years during lockdown because of Johnson's um 2,500 pound like airport de deportation kind of hotel thing that anyone coming from the global south had to do mm. to get back into England and I couldn't afford that. So yeah, I spent a lot of time diving and that really changed my thinking about how important experience is because I did get changed. I did start to navigate underwater much more slowly and um, attentively and without vision being the most important thing, because human vision disappeared. I mean, we can't really see more than a couple of meters properly in water, underwater. This question of embodiment is something that's coming up a lot at the moment, uh, whether it's from science, like we know the best way to change somebody's mind is to have them experience a new way of being rather than just offering it to them intellectually. We know that the best way of opening up people's imaginations around what the world could like is have them to come and experience this is what it is to live in community. And that was typically the roles of festivals throughout much of human history was for communities to get together, turn all the rules on their heads and experiment with what it was to be that community and come up with potentially new ways of being. And it's something that we know we have a problem with in the West, whether it's the fact that we seem to be riddled with bodily diseases, um, this focus on, on intellect as opposed to any other kind of wisdom or knowledge. I'm thinking of that... Um, the tarot card, the fool that carries a a stick and it cuts between his his head and and his body to show that um, he doesn't know where he's going because he's not connected actually to um, his so brilliant physical embodiment in the world. And how interesting as well that this like networked intelligence of the internet and when I by intelligence I mean the fact that all these very many human beings that are connected is also disembodied. And now the thing that we are using to navigate it, all of this technology, the thing that we're building is also disembodied. And it would seem such an obvious limitation given being in the world, Dasin, Heidegger's Dasin, it's being, 
<laughs> yeah. It's yeah. literally being. It is experiencing. It's not generating. Just generating. But hmm. maybe I think okay, so this the terrible balancing of um extractive capital as in loads of you know like blood diamonds and blood in the mobile and all of those sort of documentaries about what it costs communities in the congo or anywhere that's got loads of store of uh, rare earth minerals and metals that are all essential to our technology all of this will only and the energy use all of this will only exponentially increase with the visions of what the futures of VR and more embodied or sensory stimulated engagement in immersive technology could bring. And I'm acutely aware of that. And it's all, there's, yeah, some artists, or not just artists, but I tend to know more about that field, but I can't remember her name, but someone has set up this, like communities of people who all around the world in each time zone are willing to main, uh, host and maintain a solar panel array, like big. And um, so wherever, so as the, you know, network of uh, the internet is experienced around the world, a different solar node would, would power it. Like, I can't remember her name. But that was a really interesting project, and she's worked obviously with scientists to um, manifest manifest that. And I think she's got in, innovative industry funding. But so, I know there's ways of dealing with some of the issues around how much more and more tech advancement will cost in literal true, material terms. True cost, yeah, yeah, true cost, precisely. But then set against that is a sense that, you know, we could be asking what kind of bodies would inhabit these virtual worlds or what sorts of physics. Like there doesn't need to be gravity. People don't need to be doing linear stuff. The avatars that you could live in could be sensing really differently. Like you could be learning in that disembodied space and there's so much work being done on, you know, sensing skins and all that kind of stuff to make you... I mean, it's clunky and it's oh. B-movie sci-fi in a way. But we have skin. <laughs> just... no. Well, then, little little triggers of heat and pressure and stuff. But we have no, it. I know. I know. I know. Oh, tech is so weird. Like, the people... The people driving tech is so weird. Oh, I Do you know what? No. I just I saw this tweet the other day. Can I tell it to you? Because it made me laugh so much, and also it made the floor open up underneath me. It just gave me vertigo. But it was this like Silicon Valley dude that was like, "Hey guys, I'm obsessed with this idea of podcasting IRL in real life. Has anyone tried it? One, get a group of friends together. Two, sit and discuss things. No microphones. Three snacks and stuff available for wrap it up before the end of the night and somebody was like has this tech dude just discovered hanging out with your friends I know. I know. oh my god <laughs> do you know what i mean 
that's yeah no that is i can't well i mean i do believe that but that is so scary i mean the, the thing of you know the metaverse and and you can hang out with your friends you can you can take meetings as if you're there you can hang out with your friends as if you're there you can do this as if you're there you can you know we're trying to figure out your skin like guy 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 we all we <laughs> we already have skin i'm i already have vision i'm very lucky I'm, I'm i'm very fortunate i've got all my five senses and the only reason i can't hang out with my friends is because they're not near to me but the metaverse is literally not going to like solve that problem for me we already have all of the things that don't take that don't cost the earth and don't demand huge energy and are actually embodied and would promote a better quality of life and it just seems bonkers to me that we keep trying to while you were you're talking about you were talking about disembodiment and extraction and I just kept thinking about how we're like extracting from life to create this economy of death these these things that are dead that mimic life and cost more and more of life to produce all in the name of i don't know what the name of it is anymore is it still progress is that still the I banner i'm gonna say is it still exactly i think innovation and ambition are also words that i hear spin doctoring yeah everything yeah i'm saying Yes, uh, with you, way over 100%. Mm. But I think what I was going to say is the other side in that thing is that these tools that already saturate our reality, they are, they are who we are as much as that body sitting, having tea with friends around a fire or whatever. Mm. Yeah. is this media space that you and I are currently in. So it it's also got such incredible potential. And I suppose that's where I think ecologically and socio-politically and oh, everythingly, that is where artists can try and insert different versions of what's possible into these platforms. So... Not just artists, but as I keep saying, that's where I'm thinking from with you today, is the worlds that people live in in games don't have to be what they are and they don't have to be about shooting and buying and selling and conquest. And um, the mediums could have different templates and different kinds of algorithmic uh, agency so the other piece we did that was what the serpentine we're still trying to get funding for it so not did but is called iscri which is interspecies research institute and that was in in consultation with serpentine's creative ai lab team we were brainstorming the idea of training an algorithm on an octopus in its ocean environment through lots of sensors picking up loads of kinds of event and uh, encounter and effect that we are pretty much blind and deaf to with our five particular, the way we have developed our five senses in this brain-body separated tendency of Western intellect culture. So, uh, 
And we were thinking that if some kind of communication started happening between the AI and the octopus, we wouldn't know it was communication or meaning. So that would be quite a radical kind of decentering of the human. Okay, uh, hang on. Can you just explain that to me? We, how, we wouldn't know if it was communication or meaning. Okay, so maybe, maybe say the octopus is doing one of its color displays. Although I've read every science fiction and every marine biology paper on what these color patterning displays are doing, there's some basic understanding of mood and emotion, but the complexity of it, um, when it's to do with camouflage, it's maybe more obvious, but sometimes it isn't that. So I don't, already don't know what they're doing with that. And then we were thinking about if an AI learned to respond in an environment that wasn't that was one where I mean a virtual one that it's training in, that it would be possibly making moves or repeated commands or gestures or whatever that wouldn't make any sense to us because every way they're trained at the moment is by human agenda and imagination or very, no, not really, well, yeah, obviously, but this, the goals are all prescribed by our, our goals. So, well, not our goals, but corporate marketing surveillance goals, mostly. It's a servant right now. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. First little artificial surf. Okay. So I see that. So if it was trained off of an octopus and it began communicating or doing things that we didn't understand and we fundamentally couldn't understand, then that decentralizes or sorry, decenters the the human perspective as being the dominant one of, of, yes. of the world. And maybe we'll make us a bit more aware of our limitations. Like, you know, sometimes when I'm having seminars with students, because I teach a bit at art schools in London, and um, the assumptions some people have, like saying, we're the, only, we're the top of the evolutionary tree, because we're the only self-aware, exactly. <laughs> but like, wow, mm. where does that still come from? So, yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm with you. I know it's all very. It's very confusing. But I think small steps towards sort of co-evolution with technology that actually serves the planet not 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 capitalist human agendas is something I feel involved in and I I was feeling really hopeless up to I think 2016 I read this book by Donna Haraway the what how would you describe her like theorist and she wrote a book about cyborgs that was actually about women and monkeys, like years and years ago, she's sort of been working with us and our stories about technology, inadequate stories about technology for a very long time. But so she wrote this book called Staying with the Trouble, which is really about waking up and contributing to 
building change. Mm. And so she talks a lot about how what stories tell stories, what kinds of knowledge builds knowledge, what how much detail and enmeshed consequences and communications matter and really embedding in an environment to understand all its nuances and whatever it is, whether it's abstract environment or a piece of land that's being eroded or particular animals are dying out or whatever, and learning to grieve. That made me very emotionally full and move through and move through that with the belief that we have agency to change. So, yeah, that book was like a clarion call. And and then another writer that is really... So lots about storytelling. And then there's this author called Deborah Levitt who writes about animation. And she says that... I'm just going to... This is what I wanted to just read. Animation produces possible worlds not the world, as does cinema. It is expansive and questions subjectivity, gender, reality, materiality. It can model new ways to negotiate different in-between worlds, open up possible bodies, spaces, and temporalities. And what we don't know is a generative space. So I think that also was very inspiring to me. It's been a while since I had an artist on the show, to my shame actually, because I think the climate crisis is so often talked about as a, a, a scientific problem and the solutions offered are, are technical ones, right? And as we can see, tech that is made in the image of, of man in his current state, and I do say man rather than human quite deliberately, <laughs> um, it's not necessarily going to be helpful. And I think that there's been quite like a deliberate underfunding of the arts and neoliberal economies because that is how people grow their imaginations it is how they dare to dream dare to envision other ways of organizing and of being in ways that are more aligned probably with our you know innate values as, as human creatures and I mean I when I came along to your exhibition and spoke with some of the other artists there I was amazed and like so pleased to see this interdisciplinary approach now becoming far more understood as necessary. Like some of those artists were working with the physics department at the University of Cambridge to help them try and not just communicate, but actually understand the data that they're getting in from their experiments to offer these other perspectives. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And I also think um, in a way it's really interesting what you say about the like the lib neoliberal states don't are, are, are underfunding the arts and humanities but and i also think might have been like us you and me and our huge quotes that we can't remember who did them <laughs> but um might be norbert viner no anyway it doesn't matter but somebody said a while ago that we're put in these positions where we make small wins that don't actually affect the uh like you know corporate agendas of capitalism yes and we feel in our boxes like we've made progress and sometimes i feel in the art world like the hugely necessary decolonizing of like the art world being 
run, owned and experienced by white middle class and upper class people all over the Western world has been hugely important. But I mean, it is, but in a way, just showing a lot of people of color in, in these environments over and over again, I really hope that is going to bring sustained change and systemic change. But at the moment, uh, yeah, I don't know how it's almost like that's been co-opted. And then there's no, there's, there's the resistance to giving voice to stuff that's about the planet or climate or radically change, like this whole Just Stop Oil stuff being criminalized and all the voices coming forwards, like Chris Packham talking about um, it's time to break the law, uh, which obviously um, Black Lives Matter have been, and histories backwards through slavery have been having to do. I'm not, I'm being very, I'm just trying to get to some, I'm being very, um, generalizing but i'm trying to get to something about the fact that voices from all over the world clamoring about the state of the planet and if we don't have a viable world for life left due to our inaction uh, that's the end of humanity the, the i do feel like grassroots change is is all we have and i part in at the moment because none of the governance as you were saying pay any attention they're completely have no accountability to their populaces all over the world in so many different kinds of economy and um, political system so I suppose my interest in like watching the way yeah art is beginning to be working more interdisciplinarily with other sorts of production, cultural production, and also how it's beginning to insert itself into game worlds and things being available on all sorts of platforms that are for gamers, not for artists in particular. And looking at that stuff that Deborah Levitt was saying and thinking about like like for us focusing on non-human perceptual systems and what representation might mean and the fact that there's loads of new aesthetic languages available that we can explore the synthetic in and the virtual and the multiple and the fluid and all of that is... I don't know, is trying to engage with all this new stuff and challenge its intended use and turn it against itself and... Um, resist. Resist. Yeah. Art is a form of resistance. Love as a form of resistance, which is what these can only be. That's beautiful. And yeah, no, love is a thing that is growing I think amongst all this horror yeah or perhaps was always there as well there's this you know like theme amongst you know new agey communities to talk about raising the human consciousness which I'm really wary of because it totally feeds into this idea of like the the apex of evolution humanity being the apex of evolution and this moment in time being the apex of our evolution, rather than quite possibly a bloody mistake <laughs> that we need to apologize for and rectify. 
all there is so much innate um richness and goodness and life and love and everything in the world and we built a system that wasn't interested in the best bits of it essentially um that was interested in labor it was interested in atomizing each like the individual human experience to an economic equation essentially are yeah. you a capitalist are you a laborer what's your output what's your input what what costs are externalized etc cetera, etc cetera. and did the same with the planet and i think now anything that isn't resistance to that is is complicit that's probably a binary that i'm fairly happy with and resistance can take it's so important to explain this i think to people that resistance can be everything from like a teenager not wanting to be on social media like refusing to kind of play that game um to people organizing their economy slightly different to mutual aid networks but also to the kind of grassroots that is not purely localized because i think this is it when people talk about grassroots they think about it as being localized within a place so okay well maybe it'll work for these people but how are we going to make it work around the world and it's like no but you have to when we think about grassroots people focus on the grass bit the fact that it's like small <laughs> rather than the root bit the fact that it is networked like if you can get game designers to change the narratives in this like billion dollar industry and start offering new ways of experiencing play and the world and perspectives and everything then you're going to get a generation of kids who likely are going to go and work in tech yeah this the big relationship i don't have the data on this obviously i'm just making it up but from what i've seen there's a big relationship between those kids that game and those kids that go into tech and they're going to come in with a new way of thinking a way that is different like that's the grassroots as well much like in mycelium network perfect yeah and i think i think also the opportunities finally being given to voices of um indigenous peoples and mm -hmm. you know african or and jamaican etc like caribbean diasporas people black british black american all of the these sort of rising interagency groups although although obviously you can still be cynical about what's actually being achieved or allowed, but I think that's infecting the kinds of stories being told and the sense of community and grassroots and um, entanglement with environment and nature. And all of that is being way more woven into storytelling now because of those voices finally having agency across the kinds of technologies and um, platforms that have been uh, created by West technology, corporate stuff. Um, yeah, um, it's tricky, but it's, um, yeah, mycelium. Hmm. That's And that as well, the things that are capturing people's imaginations and becoming kind of generally known what's being referred to that's shifted massively in the last decade so there's lots of hope and love i'm just not sure it's it's fast enough yes yes and i think 
it's also really important to never promise anybody that love is enough. Like love is love is a, love is a state and an act, and it is such an important tool in the toolbox. But you don't win the fight that we're up against just by piecing and loving and lighting the way through. Imagination is brave. Imagination, Imagination is brave, and yeah. also being on the sort of front line of damage limitation with teaching universities like the yeah the kids are hurting and that and they're and pedagogy like education needs to change just like you're talking about kids who've been gaming and what they've been gaming with going into tech is like what people are i watched one of the podcasts you have with the guy from the black mountain school in wales yeah, there's loads of stuff in your podcast that draw threads across what all of the cultural institutions that sort of need to be changed. And there's the only seemed way to do it is at a grassroots level because I don't know what I think it's because politics is owned by corporates now. But back in the day when I was at Greenham Common or whatever, or many resistance early non-violent resistance stuff yeah sorry i'm about to go into ancient history but <laughs> it felt like we did make change yeah. and i don't know i don't know how well that's going i think i think people's consciousness is getting changed but the media only report like they only report angry people People angry they can't get their cars through sat down protesters. They don't really put enough report into people understanding and valuing why people are doing these increasingly law breaking kinds of um, ecological protest. You know, the, and um, my good friend Paddy says this phrase, and it is attributed to the campaign manager for Biden, I believe. And she said, the phrase that we use is, um, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. And it should be the other way around. I'll see it when I believe it. And I think that that is also a really important caveat when thinking about the system dynamics and, and why is it that people in power don't do X, Y, and Z. I think a lot of them genuinely don't believe it because it's too, it's too difficult to understand what comes next. It's to the, this crisis of imagination to loop it all the way back. Of course, there's corruption, and of course, there is a, 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 an uncaring attitude towards those citizens. And of course, as well, there's this real fear of transitioning away from fossil fuels, transitioning away from militarism, mil militarism, all this kind of stuff. But I think a lot of people also still just don't believe it because it's too hard to believe it. It conflicts so terribly with their with their worldview. Um, that they can't quite compute. It's another reason why art and storytelling and all of this is so important because if, okay, if the facts won't work, then we need to find different ways of saying these things and inviting people to come and experience reality. Reality as it stands, <laughs> not reality as we're told it stands. Because the more people in the network, the bigger the grassroots movement can be, essentially. Um, which is what I'm seeing. I think it's getting bigger and bigger, and that's why there's room for hope. Indeed. Mm -hmm.
I think we should end on a hopeful note. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I think that's sparking different kinds of intelligence into being. Lovely. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. My final question is, who would you like to platform? Um, I've thought about it a lot, and I think I would like to platform John Wilde. He as a senior researcher at the Royal College of Art and the AI Design Labs. And he works with sort of sound, mycelium networks, alternative AI narratives. And yeah, he's also works a lot in kind of small hit and run community workshopping and brainstorming at local levels i i think i think he'd be really interesting awesome maggie thank you so much for today thank you thank you go well you too if you want to learn more i've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview if you liked this episode leave a review and share it far and wide if you loved it choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community as always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.